Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, I don't want to jump into scripture. Uh, I feel like life right now feels like a lot of running, jumping from one thing to the next. And so we just pause. Even here, sometimes, we run from one thing to the next. And we just bow before you and ask in your mercy and grace that you would open us up to yourself as we come and hear your word together and lean into it, seek to make sense of it. Would you give us ears to hear your voice, God? We confess together that it is your word that calls creation into being, that speaks order out of chaos. It is your word that brings revelation of who you are and speaks over us who we are. So, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, living God, would you once again speak through your word in your grace. We look to you in hope. We pray this prayer because you're the God that speaks and it's your desire to make yourself known to us. So give us hope, Lord. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are coming to our final Sunday in Genesis 1 to 11, 1 through 11, a series we've been in this fall called Original Grace, which I hope is what you've felt, experienced, come to see in these foundational chapters of the Bible, which are actually the foundational starting chapters of the story of the world, that the gospel, the good news of God, doesn't begin in the New Testament with Jesus, though Jesus is the fullest revelation of the grace of God. But according, as, as Genesis 1 to 11 has revealed to us, read within its ancient Near Eastern context, God has been good news from the start. That is what Genesis 1 to 11 teaches us. God has been good news from the start. Which isn't it to negate or diminish what Genesis says about original sin. The title of our series is not a, a push against the idea, the biblical teaching of original sin. Truth is, we've talked a fair amount about sin and the curse in this series, and we will again today. But deeper than this, more significantly, the study has sought to awaken us to the ways in which Genesis 1 to 11 reveals the glory of original grace right from the start, in the beginning. Grace that meets the sin and the curse. So today, I want to invite you to our final text, Genesis 11, 1 to 9. If you have a Bible with you, open it with me to Genesis 1 to 11. If you have an app, let us hear the rush of those apps opening. Genesis 11, 1. We should, that should be the case, right? And whenever you open a Bible app, it should sound like the fluttering of Bible pages. <laughs> Right? So that your friend sitting beside you knows you're not just going on TikTok, but you're opening the Bible, right? Or maybe there's like a holy oh, thing or something, <laughs> a little chorus of angels or something. <laughs> that would be good. Genesis 11, and I'll begin by reading this, the text for us. I'm reading from the NIV, and you can follow along with me. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. 
Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord, Yahweh, said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm curious what has caught you as I've read that. What questions, what reactions are stirring up in you as you hear this text read in its entirety with attention? It's a well-known story. Tower of Babel. People say, oh yeah, I know that story. I read that. But it doesn't always mean that we've sat with it. We've really paid attention to it. And so I suspect many of you have questions. I, I finished reading it. Some of you look at me with your, like this little sprinkle in your forehead like, hmm, that's weird. I don't know what to do with that. I hope you have questions. Honestly, because it means you're paying attention. And Questions can lead to leaning in, leading into God and his word and how God's people have made sense of God's revelation, and that's good. doesn't mean every question will find an answer. Uh, to be honest, the first question this text provokes for me, I haven't fully resolved. Uh, it has to do with the opening line. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole world had one language, and a common speech. The confusing thing about this is that in Genesis 10, which is the chapter before 11, we're told about the generations that come from Noah, and three times we encounter a verse that says something like Genesis 10, verse 5. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans with their nations, each with its own language. Three times in Genesis 10, we encounter that. And then specifically, the very last verses of Genesis 10 read, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages. These are the clans of Noah, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And then we read this verse, our opening verse, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language, and a common speech. How does it make sense? Can we just be honest? Uh, at least not to me. And if you're hoping that I'm going to bring some surprising Hebrew language insight that's going to flip all this on its head, there isn't. I mean, it's interesting to know that the Hebrew word for one language is really one lip. And the Hebrew word for common speech literally reads one word. But that does not put the puzzle back together. 
doesn't change the fact that right after we're told that Noah's descendants are spreading out across the earth and with their own languages, Genesis 11 begins with saying that everyone had one language and a common speech or dialect. So I don't have a complete answer for that, which is maybe a really weird thing for the Bible teacher to say. Except, as we've talked about through this study, and I think Aaron especially has been really helpful in this, this may be yet another example where we are to keep in mind that in the ancient world, writers were more concerned with meaning than with chronology. Which isn't to say they didn't care about truth. They cared greatly about truth. But the truth they were most concerned with was not about historical chronology, but the meaning of the work of God. God cares about truth. He's the one inspiring this word. But in the ancient mind, the truth is focused more on, more is, well, let me say that as the way I've written it, is focused on something more important than historical chronology. As with Genesis 1, the truth of Genesis 11 is more about the why of an event and the who, particularly who God is, than rather, or rather than simply the how or the timeline. Which is possibly why, if we were to keep reading in Genesis 11, the second half of this chapter, we discover, returns to the matter of Noah's descendants, more genealogy. So Genesis 10 is genealogy. The end of Genesis 11 is genealogy. And right in the middle, we find the story about the tower and the people of Shinar. Inviting us to view Genesis 11, maybe not as a particular event in the middle of the chronology, but as the story that explains why the nations were spread out and developing their languages, what God was up to in this. So, having not fully answered that question, but proposed a maybe, let's now walk through this text, and I'll give you my best observations that I hope will make sense of some things as we go, which I hope will ultimately lead us to hear God's heart in this text, because I have come to love what I think is here. So, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found plain in Shinar and Hedel... I'm... Pause. <laughs> and settled there. Anyone from Shinar? No. Note the two places here, two place references, eastward and Shinar. They're both significant, equally so, which might seem surprising. Shinar, though not hometown for any of us, is a reference to the land or region of ancient Mesopotamia, the world's first great civilization, where Babylon in time would come to be the capital city. Babylon, considered the center of the universe for generations to come, the birthplace of civilization, notably a place where the Israelites themselves would spend a few generations in exile, right? In ancient Akkadian, the language spoken at that time, the name Babylon meant the gate of the gods. But here in Genesis 11, at the end of the story, the city will be referred to simply as Babel, which in Hebrew sounds like the word for confusion, a twist that I hope the story will make sense for us. But with this, Genesis 11, verse 1, describes Shinar as the place that the people found as they moved eastward. Okay, last time I did this, I was totally wrong. We live in the West. That, eastward, eastward. 
which might not seem like a big deal, except that in Genesis, there, this is already the sixth reference to east or eastward, and almost every single time, I would say five of the six references, are spoken to mean moving away from the presence of God. Genesis 4, verse 16 says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. As historians point out, this further highlights the geographical location, cultural location of this event. John Walton, many others will explain. In terms of technologies, it's funny to think of bricks as a technology, but it is. In terms of technologies referred to, burned brick technology was unique to Mesopotamia, where the location in the alluvial plains would have required stones to be imported over great distances and only at great expense. I know you love the word alluvial. Uh, which not only affirms the historical setting, but gives us an indication that the people in Genesis 11, the descendants of Noah and others, having moved eastward, away from Eden, and settled in Shinar, have learned and adopted the ways of the people and the place, the culture where they live. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that they may make a name, we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Note the dual motivations in this project that they take on. Both there's an aspiration to make something of themselves, and there's a fear. There's a fear of what might happen if they don't do it. I've never noticed this before. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. An aspiration and a fear that leads the people to build not just a city, but a tower. A tower that would reach to the heavens. Which has led many, previously myself included, to read this story as a powerful symbol of humanity's perennial attempt to ascend to the heavens to God, maybe as a picture of religion, as a perpetual attempt to ascend to God, to reach God on our own merit, to climb our own steps on our own strength, or as a sign of our own pride that we can, on our own, ascend the steps to God, maybe even to be our own God, which makes sense. And many have made this case, and it's a strong case. But heard in its ancient Near Eastern context, which we've been seeking to do in this whole study, this tower-building endeavor takes on a different meaning. Because in the ancient world of Mesopotamia and Babylonia, as historians everywhere agree, temple complexes, which was the heart of every city, often included a tower known as a ziggurat. If you go Google ziggurat, you'll find fascinating photos about the ancient world. Usually a ziggurat was described as literally reaching to the heavens or with its head in the heavens. Note the common language to what is being said in Genesis 11. But here's the significance, maybe the surprising significance. The purpose of the tower wasn't built for people to ascend to the gods, but it was built as a means for the gods to ascend to the people easily and often. 
That was the hope. In truth, in most settings, humans were forbidden from ascending the steps. It wasn't made for the humans. It was made for the gods. Which is what the whole tower was for. It was really just a structure to support a stairwell. There's no center to it. There's no internal spaces to a ziggurat. It's not like a pyramid that has tombs in the midst or it's not something that has a temple in the middle of it. It's just a massive staircase to the sky or from, from the sky. It's not a stairway to heaven, but a stairway from heaven. That's the distinction about towers in the ancient worshiping world. A tower, a ziggurat was built not so that humanity could ascend to God, but so the gods could descend to humanity easily and often. Usually at the top, there was a simple or sometimes elaborate platform, usually with a bed, ideally a bed that's been made, and possibly a table, all intended as something of a green room for the gods. Anyone done stage work over the years? The green room is the place where you get to just chill, put your feet up, you're off duty, it's not time to perform. That's kind of what the platform was at the top of an ancient ziggurat. It was like a green room for the gods where the gods could come and just enjoy some leisure. They're not up in the heavens ruling things. They're not down in the temple receiving things. They're just behind the veil, having some me time, maybe having a nap in the bed that's been made for them. Which could seem ridiculous to us. Uh, this is not how we conceive of the God of the universe. But life in the ancient Near East, the life in the ancient Near Eastern world was governed by what historians refer to as the great symbiosis. Something of an agreement, a social contract between lowly humans and the gods. Again, to quote John Walton, an Old Testament scholar. He says, wherein the gods had created humanity to meet their needs, in turn, the gods met the needs of humanity, protection, and provision. Great symbiosis thinking, which pervades the religious systems of the ancient world, was based on mutual needs. The needs of humanity for protection and provision, the needs of the gods to not have to do basic labor, to not have to get their own food, or get the blanket at the end of the night. We talked about this in our study in Genesis 1, and the previously unheard of idea of humanity being made in the image of God. Ian Proven, I quoted weeks ago, I'll say it again. He said, our Sumerian and Akkadian, our ancient sources, consistently portray human beings as having been created to work for the gods, to do work that is essential for the continuing existence of the gods. Pardon the extra commas, that, they have, that the gods have tired of doing for themselves, right? That's what the stories are. We read, we talked about the Enuma Elish, the ancient Babylonian story of the creation of the world and how there was no intention to ever make humans, but at a certain point, the gods got lazy. They got bored. They didn't want to have to do the work for themselves. So they made humans who would be their slaves. In other words, ordinary human beings represented slave labor to meet the needs of the deity. And in exchange, in the great symbiosis, the gods would provide for humans and protect the humans sometimes, right? Though only those who benefited them who met the needs of the gods. Which I hope begins to help us understand the aspirations and the fears that led the peoples of Genesis 11 to endeavor to build a tower 
a ziggurat in their new land, a tower that reaches to the heavens. Not so they could climb up to the gods or aspire to be their own god, but to ensure that in their new life, in this new land, they too would please the gods, provide for the needs and maybe sometimes whims of the gods, and in so doing, garner the favor of the gods or at least not their curse. And notice the undeniable implications of this whole great symbiosis way of thinking. What this says about the gods of the ancient world and how people perceive them. First, along with telling us that the gods of the ancient world have needs, it tells us that they were always considered regional. That we might even say local. Hence, the people of Genesis 11, now far east of Eden, felt that they needed to build their own tower, their own ziggurat to serve the local gods of this valley, this region, this plain. Because, secondly, the gods are selfish or simply disinterested in anyone who wouldn't benefit them. Again, to quote John Walton, all religion in the ancient world was local. Only those who lived in the vicinity of the temple could be engaged in caring for the gods. And the gods would only be interested in providing for and protecting those who could care for them. It's not that the gods were powerless beyond their local area. They were rather disinterested in other places. Their needs were all that mattered. That's what people believed in the ancient world. That's what shaped their worship. That's what led them to build towers. That's what led the people of Genesis 11 to build themselves a city with a tower reaching to the heavens. Are you with me? Mostly-ish. I'm getting lots of nods. A few closed eyes. That's okay. Life in November can be exhausting. So can preachers. Okay, back to the text, to verse 5, which is really the center of this text for lots of reasons. Genesis 11, verse 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Note the irony in this sentence. For all the people's attempt to build a tower reaching to the heavens, the Lord has to come down just to see it. Just to see it. But there's more to this verse, as I'm sure you may be realizing as you think about what we've just talked about, about the great symbiosis. More that this verse reveals about the God of Israel. In truth, there's so much, and I'll mention three. First of all, we're invited to notice that the God who's described here, the God who comes down, is explicitly who? The Lord, Yahweh. Yeah, Lord, all caps. And I know I've mentioned this so many times before, but it's amazing how often we miss this because this is the name that God gives himself at the Exodus. This is the name that God gives himself at the Exodus. The story of God hearing the cries of the suffering. Hearing the cries of a people li living in a land of idolatry and oppression and slavery. And he doesn't just hear it, but he cares and he acts. He comes to save, to rescue, to restore, to shut down idolatry, to bring an end to oppression and liberate people, including the Egyptians who would see God and come with this is what the name Yahweh means. It is not just a word. It is a story. It is the gospel in the Old Testament. That is what Exodus is. A God who hears the cry of the suffering and comes and acts to save and restore. The God who comes near in Genesis 11 to tower building people 
is the Lord who comes to save, to rescue his people from idolatry and oppression. Sometimes I wonder if when we come to the word LORD, all caps, in the Old Testament, whether we're reading the Psalms or Exodus or wherever we are, we should say the saving God. Not LORD, all caps, or even maybe just Yahweh, but the saving God, because that's what it means. Second, the verse says, the Lord, the saving God, came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Note that it doesn't say that God came down to smite them, or God came down to bring wrath, to judge, or even to scatter them, though he does ultimately scatter them. No, it says the Lord came down to see, to assess what they were doing and why. And God can do that from the heavens, but we're told he came down to see what they were doing. This is emphasizing it. We see something similar with God's response to Cain in Genesis 4. We see the same thing before that when Adam and Eve have turned and eaten the fruit and act in rebellion against God, God comes down with questions. And this is important because people often think of the God of the Bible and especially the God of the Old Testament as a God with a short fuse, right? A God who was always rushing in with rash judgments, with explosive anger. But that is not what we encounter in Genesis 11 and in so much of Scripture. I've said to some people in passing, maybe I've made it a reference in a teaching. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that means slow to anger literally means long of nostrils. And it's beautiful because the idea is something has happened and instead of God saying, well, pardon me, God stops and breathes in to take in what's happening And that is what we see all throughout the Old Testament. A God who does not act rashly, but who pays attention to what is going on and acts justly at the right time. Who is slow to anger. It isn't to say that the God of the Old Testament is never angry. There are times where God should be and is angry. But he is not quick to anger. And Genesis 11 is another story that affirms that. God, in Genesis 11, is not a God with a short fuse. The saving God comes to see what they were building, to assess it and the motives behind it, and then and only then to respond. Third, third, and this is the most important of them all, and I, I could go so far to say that this is the gospel in Genesis 11. Notice that the Lord comes down in Genesis, the Lord who comes down in Genesis 11 doesn't need a tower to do so. Truth is, they aren't even finished building their ziggurat, which means they haven't done anything for the gods or even Yahweh. Nothing, they've done nothing to warrant God's favor, nothing to warrant God's attention, nothing to warrant God's care. And for that matter, verse one already tells us they've moved eastward, away from Yahweh's area of interest or concern, they could think. Maybe they've heard stories about Yahweh from their ancestors, what happened with Noah, what happened with Adam and Eve, what happened with Cain. But that was out, that was out west, We've left that behind. So in the ancient world of the, of the great symbiosis, this 
really codependent religious exchange of the ancient Near East. The people of Genesis 11 hadn't provided God with anything to warrant his attention, and yet we're told the Lord Yahweh came down to them. Why? Not because they'd earned anything. Not because they'd paid their religious dues. Not because they'd made the nicest bed for him or met any of his needs or whims or wants. Because it doesn't matter. He comes down. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of Genesis and Exodus, the God of Israel, doesn't have any needs that we need to meet before he comes to us. Yahweh, the God of Genesis and Exodus and Israel, doesn't have any needs that we need to meet before he comes to us. God cares for the people of Shinar, east of Eden, apart from anything they could offer him. And so in his grace, he comes down to see what they're doing and why, what's driving them, and to respond. Verse six to nine, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord Yahweh scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, whole earth. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I think this is the part of the story that we find most jarring. Maybe at the beginning when I read it, this is the part you're like, hmm. It's almost as though God is concerned about their productivity, that he's threatened by it. Oh, look what they'll do. Build a great tower. Don't want that to happen. Don't want people to be productive. Entrepreneurial. It's so unreligious and unholy. Let's go mess with them. That's almost how we hear this. I wonder if some of you felt that way. Let's make it impossible for these people to achieve something. Let's make it impossible for them to achieve anything. Together, worse, together, that they would do something together. Wouldn't want that. That's how some of us read this and think about God. That's what God's doing here. But I don't think that's at all what's going on, particularly when we grasp the power of the great symbiosis thinking and the fear that led the people of Shinar to build a tower in this new land. Which isn't to say that God's response here isn't decisive and even aggressive. It is. God's judgment here on their tower building project, on this tower building community, is undeniable. He stops their tower building project by sowing confusion that led to a scattering. That's what God does here. This is God's judgment. And I want that to be clear. It's worth noting what it is because I think we often import into this scene things that aren't there. God does not come down and smite them, smote them, smoke them, any sort of words that come in that realm. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He doesn't curse them in any way. And I say that particularly because in the book of Revelation we see invited into the kingdom of God and celebrated diverse cultures and diverse languages. The diversity of peoples and cultures and languages is not God's curse upon them. He doesn't curse the people of Genesis 11. He simply but decisively stops their tower building project by sowing confusion that leads to scattering 
which still may be surprising to us, not what we'd expect from the God of Genesis or the Bible or much less the God of the gospel. Because right from the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, we've been reading it together, we meet a God who is the creator and the inspirer of community. And to that end, unity, right? Many of us would probably say God is after unity. God is seeking it. He always wants it. Whereas disunity is something that comes as a result of sin and the curse, right? That's what we see in the wake of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Their relationship with God and with one another is fractured. It begins to be fractured. They hide from God. They blame one another. And then one of their sons kills his brother. And on the story goes and grows. Sin leads to breakdown of community. Sin leads to the destruction of unity. And yet here in Genesis 11... God's judgment on the tower building of the people of Shinar involves the scattering of a community. Has God changed his ways in Genesis 11? Only 11 chapters in. I can see why some might feel that way. I'm thankful for an insight from Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. I don't always agree with him. He's not always as evangelical as I'd like him to be. But sometimes he can see things clearly. And in his study on Genesis, he makes an observation that not all unity is God-given. Not all unity is God-honoring, which also means that not all scattering is an act of rebellion against God. Truth is, and I'm sure some of us have experienced this, there are times when people rally together against God and God's ways. Yes? There are times where in the cloak of religion, building a tower, people rally together against God, rally together around false ideas about God and what God wants most, which means there are times when the scattering of God-defiant community can be an act of God, an act of God's justice and mercy and goodness. Similarly, there are times when God has purposed, purposes that call for and even require the scattering of God's people. We see this in the book of Acts, when God sovereignly causes the persecution of the church to, be, to force the people of God out of their holy huddle to take the gospel to Kununura. Did I say it right? To leave the comfort of a community that knows and loves you and to step out into the hostile lands of Australia. Just kidding, hopefully not hostile. But to go, to be scattered with the gospel across the Gentile world, this is what God does in the book of Acts. For which, in that moment, stubborn unity and unwillingness to scatter, no, God wants unity, could have been viewed as God defiance. All that to say, Brueggemann says wisely, there is a unity that God wills. And there are times a scattering that God envisions. And Brueggemann contends that this is what God is doing here. Injustice and mercy. The people of Shinar are inspired by fear under the lie of the great symbiosis have rallied together to build a tower to meet the needs of the gods so that the gods will meet their needs. And Yahweh, the saving God, comes down in grace Injustice and mercy to shut it down. Not just their tower building project, but in this to come against the lie 
the oppressive lie that has inspired them to fear, act in fear, and the hive mind that has perpetuated this lie among them, which in the end helps us see, I think, that God's judgment isn't as much about bringing confusion as it is about revealing the confusion that is at the heart of the community of Shinar, the heart of a city that would be called Babel, and in this, of Babylon, the birthplace of civilization, of a world, ancient and modern, we also say maybe a religion, religions, ancient and modern, built on the lie of great symbiosis of a world where needy, selfish, and generally disinterested gods must be pampered, entertained, and sustained by humanity, and where humans, women, and men are nothing more than fear-driven slaves of the gods, building elaborate towers of luxury for needy deities at great personal expense so that the deity might might be good to them or at least not be bad to them. Thank God for the gospel. The gospel that meets us in Genesis 11. The gospel above all that meets us in Jesus and the cross. A gospel that tells a different story of the world and our place in it. A different story of the God who is over this world and our place before him of a God of the Lord who has no needs and yet who comes down. Not merely to reveal our confusion, but to reveal himself, his grace, his glory, his sufficiency. As God himself would one day inspire the psalmist to write in Psalm 50, verse nine and 10, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world is mine and all that is in it. The Lord, the God who is over all, has no needs, which makes his coming down all the more a revelation of his goodness. That the God who doesn't need us comes to us. Why? Because we need him. And he is for us, as we sang before. There's need here, but it's not in God. It's in us. And in his grace, he comes to us. Even when we're far off, even when we're far east of Eden in Shinar. So let me just close with an image a mental picture I want to offer you and a few questions to linger with and then we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. First, the image. I want to invite you, you can close your eyes if you want or if you're just like on the edge of falling asleep, open your eyes. You could even stand if you want. Uh, I want to invite you to simply imagine God standing before you with his hand open to you. but not in need of something from you, but offering something to you. When you picture God, when you come to God in prayer, whether you do imagine, image God, or you're just thoughts, is God's hand open toward you? And if it is, 
Is it a hand asking for something or a hand offering something? Because Genesis 11 and the gospel of Jesus reveal to us above all that God's hand is open toward us. Offering something, and what is it? Offering himself, offering himself to us to meet all of our need. This is the gospel. The gospel is peaking through Genesis 11 and is revealed in its fullness in Jesus Christ. A God who needs nothing, offering himself to you. And as he does this, hear this. His invitation is not, I need you to do this for me. All right, friends, I need you to do this for me. But come, come, come and know me. Come follow me on a journey where you will come to know me and discover me to be trustworthy. Come let me lead you away from tower building and fear to life. And as you imagine God with your hand open, let me ask you, Simply, where is God speaking to you in all this this morning? Who are you rallying to and with? What are the voices you are listening to? What are the voices you're listening to calling you into? Are they calling you to faith? Or are they calling you to fear-driven tower building? Are there ways in which you have been, even in your faith, in your practice of your pursuit of God, been actually fearfully, frantically building a tower in fear of God? Are there ways that God himself has been confounding your tower-building attempts of late for which you need to start saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Who's defining your vision of God? Is it the masses, the Twitter feed, huddle of friends, or is it the one who has come down? Will you bring your need to him today? Don't be afraid, he says. Come. Let's just be still before God Speak whatever your heart needs to say. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for speaking as you do all throughout Scripture. First word of the angels so often spoken, do not be afraid. And Lord, we confess that so often we have lived in ways that are fear-driven, trying to build our tower again this week to earn your favor or at least to hold off your judgment. And yet you, God, Lord, saving Lord, come down to shut down our projects and make yourself known as the all-sufficient one who does not need us, but who is for us and calls us into trust and worship in grace.